that's okay. It's okay to let our hope in Christ be seen and, and the joy that comes from that. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, rejoice in the hope that our souls can truly be well. Father, we've spent the last several years as we've dealt with a worldwide pandemic focusing on the wellness of our bodies, the wellness of our health. Father, oh, that we would have such a concern for the wellness of our souls, that we would seek to find our souls well, not by looking to ourselves as the physician, but looking to the great physician, the one who can heal not just our body, but also our souls, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that by turning from our sinful ways and turning to Christ, it can be well with our souls, that our sin, the, the disease that ate and destroyed us, Father, that that disease is cured in Christ as that sin was nailed to the cross. And Father, we come expectantly, we come hopefully knowing, Lord, that we can have hope, we can have a sure hope, that you will come again, that the trumpet will sound, and Father, that we will be reunited with our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that it can be well with our souls. I pray, Lord, that this evening as we look to your word, that our hearts would be open and attentive, Father, that we would learn and see the truth that your word gives us, but Father, that not only as we learn these things, Lord, that they would increase our hope in what Christ has done, that they would challenge us and show us how we, by your Spirit's work, uh, can turn more from sin and more to Christ to be like him. Father, we pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. We're going to be in Genesis 12 and possibly... Um, well, we'll be in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, sort of those, those passages, um, jumping around a little bit from them uh, as we're continuing on our look at Christ and his, the threefold office that he holds of prophet, priest, and king. And we are continuing on our look at the priestly office. And so we began two weeks ago looking at Adam and Eve and how they were created to be priests, how everyone is created to be a priest for God, as a priest is someone who stands in the presence of God. But of course, sin came in and, and distorted and ruined that relationship that we have. And so the need of a sacrifice was now necessary for people to commune with God, for there to be mediation between God and man. And we saw that in Adam and Eve. We saw that uh, last week in looking at the patriarchs. We looked at Cain and Abel. We looked at Noah, and we looked at Job, and uh, we're coming now sort of to the end of looking at the patriarchs uh, as we look at sort of the final patriarch, or at least the final worldwide patriarch that we see in looking at Abram or Abraham. And so there, there's a lot to look at with Abraham's life that involves the priestly work. 
Um, there's what we're going to look at this evening at, at Abraham or is or Abram uh, is an altar builder, and we're going to look at that and see some things that are discussed there in the early passages of Genesis. We know that Abraham himself uh, had a priest that he offered offerings to God through Melchizedek, and the writer of Hebrews takes up the theme of Melchizedek and points to Christ. Uh, through that, and so we'll spend some time looking at that as well uh, in the upcoming weeks. We know that um, Abraham uh, was involved with the Abrahamic covenant, and we see uh, the idea or or the sense that God's promises, as we've already seen, God's promises are sealed with a sacrifice, and we'll take some time in looking at that. And then I think when we think of Abraham as a priest, and particularly regarding sacrifices, there's probably one major event that comes to our minds, and that is Abraham's offering of Isaac on an altar. And uh, we see some very clear, amazing hope uh, found in Christ who comes to be the intercessor for us and, and how that entire situation points forward to what Christ will do. But tonight... Uh, so that's a, that's a sort of a preview of things to come. But tonight we're going to be focusing on Abraham as an altar builder. Very early on in Abraham's life, we see him building altars at key points and key moments. And we're going to look at um, we're going to look at and I'm, I, we're going to look at three of the four major times that he builds an altar. The final time is when he builds an altar to sacrifice Isaac, and that's going to be a sort of separate thing. But the same principles that we're going to look at this evening sort of focus on that. So Genesis chapter 12, look with me in verses 1 through 9. So we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9, but we're going to be focusing on some specific verses throughout there. Um, now, chapter 11, which, you know, if you think about how math works, 11 comes before 12. So at the very profound things that we say here on Sunday nights. So, um, so in, at the end of chapter 11, we see the, the Terah, uh, who is Abraham's father, and sort of what's involved with him, and, and sort of introduction into the life of Abram. And then we come to chapter 12, and, and God interacts with Abram in such a way that it radically changes his life. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram went. And just a quick little aside, those are three short words. Like, if, if you're reading through the Bible, and you, you just sort of would very quickly skim over that, and Abram went. But I just want to point out what God was calling him to do. Abram's going meant that he left behind his country. Right? So he, he was willing to go away from that which was familiar to him. He left behind his kindred or his extended family. Not only did he leave behind the, the places that were familiar to him, he also left behind the people that were familiar to him. And not only that, but he also goes 
and leaves behind his father's family. This was a call that called Abram to break with everything in his life and to follow and obey the Lord. And I can't help but notice and hear an echo of this in what Christ says, that we must be willing to give up everything to follow Christ. That we, in comparison to other people, our feelings towards our families will can be considered hatred. Jesus says you must hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, husband and wife. If you're not willing to do that for his sake, you're not, willing, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Christ's demand on kingdom people is all-inclusive. And we see that shown in how Abraham goes. So again, those three words in, chapter, in verse 4 speak volumes of the obedience that Abram had. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. So, Abram, we see in these two verses, two out of the three instances in which Abram builds an altar. And so we see Abraham as an altar builder. Now again, as we've seen, sacrifice and mediation were required for a relationship with God after the fall. We've already established that in the weeks before. So in the patriarchs, particularly the patriarchal period, fathers, as the heads of their families, they served as priests before God for their own family's sake. And so this pattern we see continued in Abraham himself. We see this same pattern in what Abraham is doing, but we see more detail in what all was involved in the life of Abraham. Abraham's priestly role, again, we see is first seen as he does his work as an altar builder. So there are three altars that we're going to look at, and the first is an altar to God's presence. And this is what we just read in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. But particularly verse 7 is where we see Abram building that altar to God's presence. Now, it's interesting. In Genesis 12, 1 through 7, we see, first of all, the call that's made to Abram. We see verse 12, chapter 1, the Lord what? What did the Lord do? He 
said. No, not, 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 not yet. He doesn't appear yet. He first says to Abraham in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, leave everything behind, and go to the place that we that I'm going to guide you to. So God's call included God speaking to Abram. God commanding him to follow the Lord. God commanding him to leave his family and to follow the Lord's guidance to a land that the Lord would reveal to him. And then we see that in this call that's given to Abraham, there are promises that, Abram, that God makes to Abram that he'll make him a blessing, he'll bless him greatly, and he'll make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, there is a clear distinction in what's happening in this passage in the way that it's actually written. God first says, but then the altar isn't built until God appears in chapter 7. But it's important to note that the presence of God always accompanies His Word. That God speaks, and through that speaking, He guides us or shows us the way into having a relationship with Him. This is a pattern that is repeated throughout the Scriptures. God speaks, and then by obedience to what God has said, we then see His presence coming upon His people. Um, This is going to become important later on when we see one of the roles of the priests was to speak or to provide the Word of God to the people. And if, if a priest is the one who mediates the presence of God, who stands before God on behalf of other people, then part of that is going to involve the Word of God being given through their lips. Which, again, points forward even more so to the fact that Jesus Christ is described by John in his gospel as the what. The what became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word. So I think that that here, just to, just to hit at something that is implied and said explicitly elsewhere, our relationship, our knowledge of God, comes through His Word first. You cannot know God apart from His Word. And we have a world today that wants to tell us that, well, you can know God any which way you want to. That you can, you can go out into nature and experience Him. You can have ecstatic experiences and experience Him. And, and that's just not the pattern we see in His Word. It's not the pattern here with Abraham. God first speaks to Abraham, making His Word known. There's also something else we see in the blessings that are given to Abraham that I think are particularly important in this time of the patriarchal period. He says that Abraham will be blessed, and that in verse 3, God will bless those who bless him, and those who dishonor Abram, he'll curse. And then he says something, I think, that is, is immensely important. And in you, all the, what? Nations or the families of the earth will be blessed. Now remember, we looked at, we looked at Noah, we looked at Job, we're seen here with Abraham. Who were the priests? The priests stood as the, the, the fathers who were the heads of the households, the head of the family. They were the ones who stood in the place and mediated the presence of God. They did it on behalf of their family. But God is telling to Abraham that through 
him and through his offspring, there's going to be a blessing that's not going to be just limited to his family, but that there would be someone who would stand as a priest for all the families. That there would be a blessing found in, and I think what we look at here, the mediatorial role of Christ for every family on earth. There's a hint of that in what's said here. In this promise, God is showing that a patriarchal priest for all people will be provided through Abram and through his offspring. This is how he becomes a blessing to the whole world. Because again, because of sin, we need a mediator. And what we're going to find out is that the household mediators are fallen. We, we didn't, we, I should have probably talked about this last week, but I mean, if we look at Job and we look at Noah, were they perfect? No. Job, we find later on, he ends up beginning to question what God is doing, and, and he, he almost sort of becomes a little prideful in what he's facing. Now, we know Job went through a lot but nonetheless, God's answer to Job is not a, a tender, oh, there, there. He comes and says, who do you think you are? And points him to the reality that Job himself has failings, has misgivings. And then Job himself recognizes that he needs a redeemer. And we know that, that great passage in Job where I know that my redeemer lives and at the last I will see him and stand upon the earth. So Job recognized his own failures. Noah, I mean, you want to talk about a failure of a priest, all right? He does this great thing. He obeys God, builds the ark. God saves them. He offers sacrifices after the flood. We looked at that last week, but I didn't go any further. You know what ends up happening after that? He's doing all, he gets drunk, gets drunk, lays naked. I mean, there's a whole, a whole scandal that happens after God delivers Noah from the flood, and so there is this, this constant reminder that, that priests from men are insufficient. Abram, which we'll perhaps look at in the upcoming weeks, we see him failing. We see him failing to lead his family as he ought to, as he's afraid of the Egyptians. He's afraid of the Canaanites at one point. And, and so he says to his wife, who was beautiful, listen, just so that these people don't take you as my wife, let's say that you're my sister, all right? And so they go down there, and, they, and the people are like, oh, this isn't your wife, this is your sister? Let's take her as our wife. Like It has the complete opposite uh, intention that Abraham had with it. But yet it shows the, the failure of Abraham to be a righteous priest on his own. And so it's interesting that the blessing that God gives here, He doesn't say that Abraham will be the blessing. He says that through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, that in him, the offspring that will come from him, there will be one who will bless all the families of the earth. And that one, of course, is Jesus Christ. So... Abram, we see in verse 4, obeys God. He went as the Lord had told him. Lot comes with him, his nephew. Abram, 75 years when he departs, and he goes to Canaan. Now, it's important to note what happens here in 
uh, verse 6 and verse 7. So Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, I don't want to do... I want to be careful with how we view symbolism in Scripture because sometimes as we look at symbolism, um, we can go a little crazy with things and, and add things that we're not seeing. But I think, there's so, I think there's something here, particularly because it's emphasized later on in the Scriptures about the oaks or the terebinths, that's the Hebrew term, uh, where, where Abram ends up setting up these tents. Um, Think back again to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, and particularly what was going on in the garden. What type of garden were Adam and Eve placed into? It was a forest garden. In the, in the garden, there were planted trees, specifically by God. And there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. And we, we spent some time looking at the connections between this sort of forest garden and God's presence, right? God would come into the presence, uh, come into Adam and Eve's presence in the garden there among the trees. We find that there are trees that grow from the presence of God in a river that flows out of the um, temple that's shown in Ezekiel. And then if we go to the end and we see the new Jerusalem with the new heavens and the new earth, there is a garden planted there. And what is there? The tree of life. There's water that flows from that tree, and its leaves are for healing. So, again, I think that there is a a hint here that the presence of God comes in these tree-lined areas. I just point that out. I'm not not saying, like, well, that means we need to go worship in the forest or whatever. That's That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there seems to be a connection here with the presence of God and these trees. When Abram obeys God and comes to Canaan, right, the, pl- the place that God would show him, the place that he had promised to him, then look at what happens in verse 7. So in verse 1, the Lord said, now we see God acting again in verse 7, the Lord what? Appeared to Abram. And then he reiterates this promise to your offspring, I will give this land. When Abram arrives in Canaan, God appears to him, and he proclaims to Abram that he would give him the land. Faithful obedience to God's word brings God's presence. Remember, Abram, leave everything, go to the place I'm going to show you. So Abram went, he obeyed, and in obedience to God's word, there now became the reality of God's presence. God appeared to him. If Abram had not obeyed, that would indicate that he did not what about God's word? What didn't he do with God's word? He didn't believe it. He didn't trust it. I think this is helpful for us to understand the relationship between faith and works. How did Abraham show that he trusted God? How was it evident in his life? He went. And it's the same thing with us as believers. How do we show that we're trusting in the Lord? We obey. And that's why James says that faith without works is what? Dead. It's not real faith. Real faith has 
actions based upon the word of God that has been revealed to us. If Abram had not obeyed, it would indicate that he did not believe. And so, God appears to Abram. And then, having experienced the presence of God, what does Abram do? Look again in verse 7. So, he built there an altar to the Lord, who had what? Appeared to him. There is an emphasis here on the presence of God. In response to God's presence, in response to God's promise, Abram builds an altar. We see Abraham responding to God's presence with sacrifice. This again is reiterating that acceptance before God is going to require sacrifice. We saw that in Cain and Abel, all right? Sin comes into the world, God curses the world, He drives Adam and Eve from the garden, um, yet He still blesses them, they have children. And so what, what is the first story about regarding Adam and Eve's children? It's about sacrifice. They bring an offering to the Lord. And so it's from the very beginning we see the need for a priestly work, for a sacrificial work to allow us to come before God. Now, there are some people who would say, well, he just built an altar. All right? and, and, and there's no indication here necessarily in the text that he sacrificed on that altar. I just wanted to quickly mention, I don't think that really holds water. And here's why. The, the Hebrew term that's used here is the term that's used throughout the Old Testament for an altar that is used for sacrifice. In fact, if you look up the lexical or the dictionary definition of this Hebrew word, it means an altar of sacrifice. Um, we, we, we see that. Here And now some people would say, well, he's just building memorials. Well, if he was building memorials, there would have been another Hebrew word that would have been used here. Um, for instance, when Israel goes across the Jordan, there is a memorial set up in the Jordan, and it, they don't use the word altar, they use the word memorial there. Um, we also see that when Abram, Abraham goes and offers Isaac as a sacrifice... He builds an altar, and the clear intention for the building of that altar is for sacrifice. So, so just to simply point out, this altar is given for the sake of sacrifice. When we, if we, want to enter the presence of God, sacrifice is necessary. We cannot come before God apart from from sacrifice. It is screaming at us from Genesis chapter 4 all throughout the rest of Scripture. But it also points us to the reality that our sacrifices done in our strength, even done according to God's command, they're, they're limited. There's, they're not enough. Because what do we have to keep doing? What did the Old Testament saints have to keep doing? What does Abraham have to keep doing? He has to keep sacrificing. He has to keep shedding blood. That there is not a sacrifice that is sufficient yet through what Abraham is doing. So again here with Abraham we see the altar to God's presence. Secondly, we see an altar to God's name. This is where we see in verse 8. 
He says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pinched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built another altar to the Lord. But then this is not an altar focused so much on the presence of God, but there, what does Abram do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, I think what's important to note here is that when the Lord appeared to Abram, it began a continual transformation in Abram's life. He now wants to experience as much of the presence of God as he can. So he has to move on from where he is there at the Oak of Morah, and he gets up and he goes to another place, and what does he do? Builds an altar. And the idea here is that there's an anticipation that through that sacrifice he'll be able to enjoy the presence of God. And so this transformation is seen as when he moves to the hill country between Bethel and Ai, he builds another altar there. But there's something, there's another added level of truth that's happening in Abraham's life because there he calls upon the name of the Lord. I think it's important to note that, that again, Abram's life is changed from the presence of God. And it is impossible, it is impossible for someone to stand in the presence of God and not be affected. We see this every single time that God's presence is betrayed before people. It will terrify them or it will transform them. And in fact, the terror begins and then by God's grace, transformation happens. The greatest example is Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Seeing God lifted up and His train filling the temple and the angels chanting holy, holy, holy around the throne of God, Isaiah's response is to look at himself and to say, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone. And so we see that happening here with Abram. Now it's interesting, it says that he moved from there to the hill country between Bethel and Ai. We don't see any reason or or purpose given for that. It, It may have been that this going up into sort of a mountainous area would allow Abraham to see a larger swath, swath of what God had promised to him. And so it, it may be that seeing the vast greatness of what God is going to give to his offspring, Abraham is moved again to worship. And then we see for the first time, he calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, our English translations have, I think, done some injustice to understanding what's going on here by using the term the Lord. Um, if you notice in your Bibles, it is not just capital L, then lowercase r, lowercase, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. All of the letters are capitalized. So this is an indication where the covenant name of God is being invoked here. Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, if you were to take the Hebrew letters and bring them into English. Yahweh is the name of God. And so we see a second level of relationship with God connected with the priestly work, with with, uh, Abraham's priestly work and a sacrifice. Abraham's calling on Yahweh becomes the key distinction of Israel. What is it that makes Israel Israel? And for so many years, and even to this day, 
The Jewish people look to the fact that they are Abraham's descendants as the thing that makes them Israel. But that is not the thing that makes Abraham distinct. What makes Abraham distinct is that he calls upon Yahweh. He's chosen by Yahweh. Yahweh is his God. The Lord is his God. The God who exists reveals himself as Yahweh. In fact, we find that the meaning of this term with Moses means I am. Moses is, has that mountaintop experience. He has the burning bush. He's sent to deliver Israel from the captivity of the Egyptians. And he says, well, what name should I tell the Israelites I'm coming to you with? And it's interesting. He, God says, tell them I am or Yahweh is the one. And, and what's the connection? Well, it goes way back here to Abraham. A, this is the God of Abraham that's calling Israel to be delivered through Moses. This is the name that Israel will use to refer to their God in contrast to the other gods of the nations around them. You know, the gods of the Philistines will be Baal. The gods of other nations will be Astaroth. There will be a number of different gods in the the polytheistic society that, that Israel is going to enter into that in the nations surrounding them. But Israel's God, the true God, is known as Yahweh. Calling upon the name of the Lord is calling upon the only God who exists. And this is exactly what Abraham is doing here. Now, it's also interesting to see what is perhaps happening in this passage. Throughout, there has, is a focus on the fact that the Canaanites, he's in the land of the Canaanites. Um, earlier on in the passage, it talks about how Abram went with Lot and all his possessions and all the people who he had gained. So there would have been servants. There would have been, there would have been a, a huge, pretty much a, a large contingency of people that would have moved into the area. And this would have garnered the attention of the Canaanites particularly as he heads up on the hill country. I mean, you, you can see it today. You, you, you go out today, you're in a low place, especially as we're having colder mornings, and you look up and you can see the steam coming off of things. I mean, it shows that there's someone there. So if you're in these lower valleys and you look up in the hill country between Bethel and Ai, and there's a bunch of people and there are fires burning, you're going to think, well, what's going on? Somebody's moving into town. It would have been evident to the nations around, and particularly to the Canaanites, that Abraham had moved in. And so notice what it says here again in verse 7. He built an altar to the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. He, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Martin Luther, in his translation of the Old Testament, he actually uses that term call and translates it uh, as preach. The term itself has the idea of proclamation. It's not that Abraham is just calling upon the name of the Lord privately, quietly. It's not that it's a, 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 a personal revelation to Abraham. He is boldly proclaiming, Yahweh is my God. In the land of the Canaanites. 
And so you can imagine, there's a physical altar built. There's a sacrifice given on that altar. There's likely a burning of that sacrifice that happens. And as Abraham does this, he proclaims Yahweh's name. This is for Yahweh. And so we actually see the priestly work in also connected with a proclamation of calling others to know the name of the Lord. Now, I wanted to take a little, a little side trip here and talk a little bit about the significance of this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord or calling on Yahweh's name. We see that it's during the time of Seth. Of course, Scripture places an emphasis on calling on Yahweh, and it's during the time of Seth that Yahweh's name was called upon first by people. We see this in Genesis 4, 26. To Seth, who was Adam and Eve's son, uh, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And it was at this time, at the birth of Enosh, that people began to call upon Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Scriptures are pretty clear in how important it is to call upon the name of the Lord. God promises His presence to those who call upon His name. And this is important, again, because what is the role of a priest? He stands where? In the presence of God. So if you're, work, if you're doing the, 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 the work of a priest, you need to call upon the name of the God to whom you are looking to. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And then this is the promise that Moses is saying to Israel. Whenever we what? Call upon Him. The idea of calling upon Him there is, is not just sort of saying His name as some sort of ritual, but rather calling out to Him in faith. Saying, I'm trusting in Him. Isaiah 145.18, we looked at this on Wednesday. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. God provides His presence to those who call upon Him. There's also great warning given in the Scriptures about those who refuse to call upon God's name. They are called evil in Scripture. Now, this is, this is one of those things where we tend to think of evil as a reference to all sorts of debauched things. The things we looked at this morning in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, drunkenness and, and revelry and drinking parties and those type of things. But the Scriptures tell us that those who refuse to call upon the name of the Lord, they themselves are evil. Look, Psalm, Psalm 14.4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not what? Call upon the Lord. They don't do what Abraham did. And again, we see faith shows itself in works, obedience. God made a promise. Abram believed that promise. He obeyed. The same thing is true about unbelief. Unbelief rejects God, doesn't call upon His name, and then it's shown in what? 
deeds of wickedness. And here they're eating up God's people. They're destroying and persecuting God's people. And it's not as though God doesn't reach out and call us to call upon Him. In fact, that's what Abram is doing as he builds this altar. He's proclaiming the name of Yahweh. The Canaanites are around him and he's saying, come and call upon Him yourself. Notice what God says to those who He is called to, but they do not answer. I'll destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was what? Evil. Evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Well, why do we call upon the name of the Lord? I think it's important to note here Abram was in Ur the Chaldees. He's minding his own business. He's, his father is Terah, uh, based on some uh, extra-biblical um, ancient documents and, and commentaries on Genesis. There's a thought that Terah was himself an idol maker, that his business was in taking wood and, or metal and molding it or carving it into idols and then selling it. And so Abram was just... Going along. It's all he knew, right? He, he lived for human passions like we talked about this morning. So why was it then, how was it that, that Abraham came to call upon the name of the Lord? And it came about because God graciously worked within him. God appeared to Abram, he, or he said to Abram. Was there anything about Abram that made him special? No. It was all of grace. And so we today call upon God's name for the same reason that Abram calls upon God's name, because God graciously works within us. Look at what Zephaniah says. God in the new covenant is going to come. He's going to change the speech of the peoples. And that's that peoples, that's a reference back to how Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the nations or all the families. He's going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What is a pure speech? That all of them may what? Call upon the name of Yahweh. The name of the Lord. And then, faith, calling upon the name of the Lord, brings about what? Obedience. Serving Him with one accord. And how, how far does this gracious gospel call reach? From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall what? And notice what the focus is here. Shall bring a what? An offering. We have the priestly work focused on again here. But again, that is beginning with calling upon the name of Yahweh. And so the scriptures are clear. God works graciously to bring people to call upon His name. And then the promise is that everyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will receive what? Salvation. Salvation is offered to all, to anyone who calls upon God's name. Joel 2.32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is repeated in Acts chapter 2, where the people have crucified Christ and they recognize that the promised one, the Messiah, they killed with lawless hands. And, and what's amazing in that passage is Peter condemns them with that, and then he ends the sermon. There's no 12 verses of just as I am and a long invitation for people to come forward. He just says, this is what you've done. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? And the answer is he call, tells them to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is what we see in the New Testament. Yahweh is found in who? In Jesus Christ. The name we call upon is the name of Jesus because He is Yahweh. We know in John 8, 58-59, the Pharisees have been questioning Christ and Jesus tells them that they're not, they call themselves the children of Abraham, but they're actually children of the devil because they do what the devil wants them to do. And of course, to someone who prides themselves on being a child of Abraham, that's really offensive. And so they said, well, how can you know this? They, they, he, and, then, and then Jesus says, well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so the Jews are like, how can, how can Abraham rejoice to see your day? You're not, even, you know, you're not even 35 years old. Abraham was thousands of years ago. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am. What does the name of Yahweh mean? I am. And we see the response of the Pharisees. It was from their perspective, blasphemy. So what do they do? They grab stones to throw at him. They want to kill him. And he hides himself and goes out of the temple. This is a very explicit evidence of Christ calling himself Yahweh. We see, as I mentioned in Acts 2, after Peter preaches, they're cut to the heart. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in whose name? The name of Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings about forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the children. And then he quotes from Joel. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What name is it that we call upon when we call upon the name of the Lord? Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, we see if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to it to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Again, let's go back to what we looked at. Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jesus, for all who believe in him, 
There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's the same Lord of all. Bestowing his his riches on all who what? Call on him. And then he quotes what we saw in Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there any doubt in your mind whose name that is in Romans 10? It's Christ. It's Christ. So, this event and this altar is so significant in Abraham's life that later on he returns to that. So look over in Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13 will end with this last altar that Abram builds. And look down at, we'll begin our reading in verse 14. Lot and Abraham separate, and the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. How long? Forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So here, here's, can anyone count the dust of the earth? No. Then God says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moves his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And what does he do? He builds an altar to the Lord. Again, I forgot to mention, it's, it's up earlier in chapter 13 where Abram goes back to the place where he calls upon the name of the Lord. We see this, in, look at verse 2 and verse 3. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where, he had, where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And then what is that place known as? It's the place where he, what? Built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Again, that connection between calling upon God is so significant that it now, it now becomes the definition of a place where Abram had built that altar. And so this final altar we see here is as Abram, and after Lot settled near Sodom, Abram settled in Canaan. And God again repeats His promise to Abram, promising His descendants everything that He sees. He also promises to make a great nation from Abram's offspring. And Abram again settles by trees. And again, I don't want to push the imagery or the symbolism too much, but I, th- I think there's something to it. And we see the promise of blessing responded to with a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. God gives this great promise, Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. Is this not a pattern we should repeat? Notice what's said in Romans chapter 11. For from Christ and through Christ and to Christ are how many things? All things. He owns. You realize everything you have 
belongs to God. And so Paul says there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What should we do? We should sacrifice. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And in Hebrews chapter 13, it is through Christ that we are called to how often, continually, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And this is amazing. I had never seen this before until I was studying this. What is a sacrifice of praise to God? It is the fruits of lips that what? Acknowledge His name. You know what? Another way we could say that? Call upon the name of the Lord. And so the challenge for us this evening is to see as we have found hope in Christ, are we following the pattern that Abram provides for us, that Abraham provides for us? Are we sacrificing of ourselves as we've called upon God's name, giving all that we are continually to Him? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Take it and apply it. Lord, what a glorious truth. What a, what a wonderful example we have in Abram. May we respond as he does, Lord. As your grace was at work in him, so it is at work in us. May we be willing to sacrifice for the sake of worshiping you. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.